Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 109 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Very excited for the first interview of season four with Molly Painshaw. Molly is a dual licensed mental health and addiction counselor. She's a certified international food addiction counselor with experience coaching individuals and their family members through recovery management. Her background in addiction treatment while working with individuals being supervised by the Department of Corrections, Child Protective Services, and other court-ordered situations inform her solution-focused and forward-thinking style. Molly is fueled by her belief that recovery is possible. She considers herself a helper, eager to encourage and support individuals and families on their journey to mental and emotional wellness. Molly believes the only way to ensure everyone who needs help with food addiction to get the treatment they need is to unify professionals in the field and push the APA and WHO to place diagnostic criteria in the DSM. Molly is currently working to expand the treatment and support options for individuals and their families who are seeking recovery by increasing online options, uniting international food addiction professionals, and educating anyone who's willing to listen. Molly is currently part of an international research team in the early stages of auditing food addiction treatment. She's a co-founder of the Food Addiction Professional Network and is a co-host of the Food Junkies podcast. She, along with her podcast co-hosts, Dr. Vera Tarman and Clarissa Kennedy, are gearing up to share the first Food Junkies Summit in October to be viewed on Facebook. Molly's also a board member for the Food Addiction Institute. So yay, super impressive background, Molly. I'm so excited to have you on today to share your story and just your experience with food addiction. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me and inviting me on. I uh, I am so used to being the interviewer that it's always kind of a shock that somebody would want to talk to me. <laughs> so thanks. Yes, I know. But it's always fun, I think, to be able especially to share your story and, you know, reconnect to that. So to start, I would love for you, yeah, just to tell a little bit about your own story and struggle with addiction and how you found recovery. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, you know, you didn't, I didn't know until I knew. So mm. I would say my story probably starts when I was about nine years old. My uh, parents divorced and it was, I mean, believe it or not, it was a shock to me. I, we were never one of those families that it was like open fighting, you know, there was never any indication to me. And I was the oldest. There was never any, any indication to me that something was wrong. And so just one day they announced my dad is moving out and we're living with mom and whatever is going to play out is going to play out at that point. And, um, uh, from that point forward, my life just changed in, in super big ways. Um, 
we moved from Wyoming to Montana and we were now about two hours away from my dad. My dad was my favorite person in the whole wide world. Um, and I never really knew why until he was no longer there 24 seven. Um, because, you know, I became then the object of what I now know must've been happening to him, but I became the object of my mother's, um, attention and it wasn't positive. So, um, the oldest of three at that point, my mother was seeing another man, which is why she and my, my dad were, um, breaking up and she soon became pregnant. So here I am about 10 years old and now there's a fourth baby. Um, and I am home with the kids during the summer, all these things, um, trying my best to take care of them while my mom is a single parent. And, um, because my stepdad was working road construction, so he was gone. He was wherever the jobs were. So sometimes he was in Nevada for months at a time. Sometimes he was in remote parts of Montana for months at a time. Um, my dad, meanwhile, was still in Wyoming a few hours away. And there was like a lot of stuff that happened where like, sometimes we would get to see him and sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes we were told he was coming, even though he was told not to come, like just crazy stuff. And, I don't really remember much about that time other than the chaos, um, and being unhappy. Like I remember just being unhappy a lot because if something happened with the younger children, it was my fault. If the chores weren't done, it was on me. If the food wasn't cooked, it was on me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there was some back and forth. I went and lived with my dad for a short while and then I was brought back and, other chaotic things. But what I do remember about some of that chaos is I remember going to live with my dad. I was, I was forced into, I mean, I say forced, I would have uh, gladly gone on my own, but it was a decision. My mother had sole custody um, of us and she dropped me off at his doorstep one day. And um, for the next six months, I didn't see her or my siblings. And now this is all before cell phones. This is all, you know, like there was a home phone and like somebody actually had to be home on the other end to be able to talk to somebody, um, hours away. I'm 10, 11 years old. It's not like I'm driving. Um, so six months go by, I haven't seen any of my siblings. I haven't really talked to her. Um, and then she decides, Oh, I need Molly home to watch the kids again, because now it's summer and I don't have childcare because nobody's in school, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I go home and I remember her making the comment, something to the effect of like, either they must not, my, my dad and his girlfriend must not have been feeding me or something was going on because in, to her, I had lost weight. Now keep in mind all my life, my mother told me that I was overweight or that I was, you know, a fat, lazy fill in the blank. Um, it always started with fat, lazy, and then it was many, many colorful things at the end. And, um, so when she made that comment, it really surprised me again. I never really thought of myself as overweight or anything. Um, I remember being in fifth grade and I was already like five foot three, you know, so I was just a fast grower. Um, also to keep in mind that my mother's mother was six feet tall. My mother's father was very tall as well. You know, so like we come from like large Norwegian people on her side of the family, you know, like just big statured kind of people. And I'm Austrian on my dad's side, hence my last name, Painshop. We're third generation on this side. So, you know, like some good, like 
German stock, you know, if you want, if you will. So again, like I never really, you know, thought of, thought of it much. And, and it's not like children were making fun of me or anything like that kids at school. So fast forward, I am forced back into her home. My dad really has not a leg to stand on because he doesn't have custody. Um, and so then it really kind of starts to ramp up the, you know, me being in charge of so many things and like told to bake cookies and then like, they didn't turn out right. So then like getting, you know, in big trouble because the cookies didn't turn out right or made fun of because I was unable to make a simple chocolate chip cookie. I was 12 years old. Like nobody was teaching me. It was just, here's, here are the instructions in a recipe book. Just do it kind of deal. Um, so, you know, I think as time went on, I used those things, like nobody would eat the, the chocolate chip cookies that turned out like they would flatten out. And so then I would use the spatula and they would look like squares and nobody would eat them because now they're square cookies. And as silly as this sounds coming out of my mouth, like this was my reality. And I found that, you know what, whatever a cookie is, a cookie, it tasted fine to me. A broken Oreo still tastes like an Oreo. Right. So like I would start to eat these things um, because I was sad because I was being bullied because, you know, I don't know, fill in the blank. I, 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 maybe I was hungry at one point and I ate one, you know, like, I think any reason at that point I was eating these things. Um, and our dinners were very Midwestern. Um, we're originally from Minnesota. I was very young when we moved out West. Um, but all of our extended family is still there. So it's, you know, it's a lot of hot dishes. So there's a lot of flour and grains and like, you know, I'm like thinking tater tot casserole and, um, goulash and all these things that have noodles and tater tots and all these things. Right. So like, not like meat, veg, whatever. My dad is a rancher. Um, so when we're with him, right, there's meat, veg, maybe a potato, whatever, um, which was probably then why there was this noticeable, you know, weight difference to my mother when I went back to her after six months. Um, again, looking back now, I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. So again, not really, I don't think the addiction piece of it didn't come until later. You know, I had several bouts of pretty severe depression once when I was probably about 16 and nobody really knew, but I was very suicidal again, nobody knew. Um, and nothing that I was ever like necessarily going to act on, but I remember having these thoughts. So in Montana, and especially at that time at 14, I could drive, I had my license, I had a car, I could drive. And I remember like having these thoughts of like, you know, I could just move my V and we didn't have a numerical speed limit. It was safe in, I don't even remember like how they worded it, but it was a non-numerical speed limit. It was like safe and prudent or something like that. Um, and gas was 99 cents a gallon. So if you, as you can imagine, once I had my freedom, I was taking it. And I remember thinking, you know, like on two lane highways, which much of it out here is thinking, oh, here comes a semi, I could just cross the line and it would just be over. And, um, not really thinking like, Hey, this is probably abnormal right? Like, uh, most kids probably don't think this way, like not really thinking that, but just hanging on anyway. I had these younger siblings that I was constantly in charge of. Um, so, you know, it really wasn't an option. If that makes sense, I would have those thoughts, but it wasn't really an option of anything I could carry out. So, um, I turned 18 and I wasn't quite graduated yet. My birthday is, um, just, just before school is, is, is typically out, out here. And, um, 
I remember being kicked out of my mother's house and I don't know what the offense was. I mean, I could have looked at her funny. I could have said something to stick up for myself and it was perceived as backtalk. I'm not really sure. I mean, we were always being told we were backtalking and like there was physical violence, all kinds of things, but I was told I had to leave and I couldn't come back. Um, and so I don't even remember what I did. Oh, I was dating an older boy at that time. He had already graduated high school. He was living in his own place and I went and stayed with him. Um, and then he, I, that was abusive and I tried to break up with him and he pulled a gun and said, if I can't have you, nobody can like, it was just like this on and on. It was like, as I got older, it just kind of progressively escalated. It was crazy. I made it back into my mother's house, um, to at least graduate high school. And I graduated and I was told that my only other option between when school gets out in May to when I started college in August, I couldn't live there. So my only option was to either figure it out on my own, or I had the option to go live with my stepdad, who was again, like in a very far away place in Montana, Montana's huge, you guys. So like it can take hours to get anywhere. He was living about eight hours away, um, working road construction. So my option was to go there and work road construction or figure it out for myself. So I I took that option and I worked the summer up in a place called Plentywood, Montana. Um, and, uh, when I came home, I got to, when I came home, I got to be home long enough to just collect my things and move to college. And once I moved to college, I was told I was no longer welcome in the home. I missed holidays with my siblings. Um, again, so like turning to the only thing I, I could. So by this time now I've experienced alcohol. Keep in mind, my dad is an active alcoholic at this point in my life. I kind of missed that part. Um, he was severe and he had moved to Minnesota. So no longer is he in Montana or Wyoming. He's, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours away, depending on where I was in Montana <laughs> to get to him. Um, and so I've discovered alcohol. I'm going the first year of my, uh, schooling, my, my college years was spent at a, a college called Montana tech. It's in Butte, Montana. And if anybody knows anything about Butte, Montana or Butte America, it is, um, it was, it, it's now it's growing again. Um, but it had been the largest, one of the largest cities west of the Mississippi back in the heyday because of the copper and the gold and the all the mining that was happening there. And there's a huge, huge Irish population and a huge, um, they have like a, a, a crazy bar per capita kind of ratio. Um, and 18 years old and we have Canadians and, um, men from the middle East, they're all coming there for petroleum engineering because that they have a big program for petroleum engineering at Montana tech. So at 18 years old, it wasn't hard for me to get my hands on alcohol. So it became this, I'm good all week. And then on the weekends, I am at these parties of these men who live off campus who are supplying us with alcohol. And my only desire is to not think, feel, remember, whatever. And those were on the weekends I stayed in Butte. Now my, my boyfriend, so my husband and I are actually high school sweethearts. So my, he was my boyfriend at the time was living, um, in Bozeman going to school at MSU. And so if I wasn't here on a weekend, that's what I was doing when I was there. So again, it just kind of progressed where it was during the week, it was the food that I would get in the, the cafeteria or whatever I had in my dorm room. And during the weekends, it was the alcohol. So that the alcohol was really kind of the main thing. And that continued to progress until I was about 22. 
so I, I graduated, I eventually moved to Bozeman to finish my degree in poli-sci. Um, <clears throat> and I graduated and I didn't know what I wanted to do because I knew I didn't want to go into politics. So I had a friend who got me a job at the pre-release. It was just opening. So I actually got to help open the pre-release where we were building bunk beds and we were putting together armoires and dressers. And for anybody who doesn't know, a pre-release is um, a program that contracts with the Department of Corrections to house offenders who are at a level of security that don't necessarily need imprisonment, but certainly they, they aren't necessarily ready or trustworthy to be in, um, like on community supervision. So they, in order to come to our program, they had to have a history of substance use disorder um, and they could not be like, like their crimes could not have been violent or sexual in nature. So the majority of people that we got were like DUI offenders, um, uh, criminal possession, criminal possession with intent to distribute, manufacturing, that kind of thing. Now, some of these men were violent, but their, their crime on paper, if so to speak, was not violent. So I had quite the learning experience. But it also meant that I was really good during the week and I was partying hard on my days off because I didn't know how to cope with these men who were in my face calling me, see you next Tuesday, calling me B-I-T-C-H, right? Like I didn't have a way to cope. I was so young. I was 21, 22 years old. So I hit 22 years old and something happens. I, I went out for my birthday. I mean, I think this is exactly what happened. I went out for my birthday and it was one of those nights where I was so intoxicated. I was physically sick, rallied, went back into like the whole drinking thing and continued. And the next day when I woke up, I was like, I like this way too much. I can feel myself slipping over that edge of like, I only want to be in that place where I don't have to think, feel whatever. And I stopped drinking. Now I I didn't stop drinking completely. I mean, I stopped drinking completely for a period of time. Um, but my drinking after that certainly changed. It was like, I have two or three drinks every once in a while. Um, and to this day, you know, I don't even remember the last time I consumed alcohol at this point in my life. Um, just because, you know, when you're a sugar addict, like I feel so many of us just kind of naturally become non-drinkers because it's all sugar. Um, but so that, that was when it really, I think, became more about the food. Um, and my husband was still in school. So he was still my boyfriend at the time, was still in school, but we knew we were going to get married when he was done. He was just like on a five-year program where I had been on a four-year program. Um, so I was like, that's it. I'm going to lose weight for my, you know, here you're, when you're drinking, whatever, all those things. I put on about 40 pounds since high school. It's now four or five years later. So I like did Weight Watchers and I lost the weight and I got married and all the things, but then slowly weight started coming back on. Um, food was definitely my thing. I put myself back in school because I decided I was going to get another undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, went to campus for one semester with children, you know, I mean, children, I mean, I was 24 at this time and here I am with like 18 year olds that have no experience with the world. And I've been working in corrections for a few years, feeling like I can't, I just can't, like I had zero tolerance for it. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to get a master's degree. So I started my online master's degree. Meanwhile, I'm still working at the pre-release. So I did things like from security where like, we're giving people breathalyzers. We had female contracted, um, offenders that would come in. So I'm doing your analysis testing. I'm doing counts. 
um, found myself in some pretty dangerous situations, unfortunately, a couple different times that like, I don't think at the time I really ever like put together that this person was really going to hurt me. Um, you know, I, I moved into like case management and I was working really closely with judges and probation and parole officers and other things. And then eventually I moved into administrative assistance where I was helping to screen people who were being accepted to the program. Meanwhile, I'm doing my online master's program, like all the things. And the only thing I'm coping with is food again, not realizing that's what I'm doing. I think I knew emotionally I was doing that because I remember I started therapy and I remember talking about like being an emotional eater and that kind of thing. So, you know, it kind of goes on and on, you know, fast forward to then I'm trying to get, you know, I get my master's degree and my husband and I are like, okay, maybe now we can start thinking about children. Can't get pregnant. Had known something was going on with me since I was 14, had been to the doctor and I'm like, something doesn't seem right. Oh, here's birth control pills, whatever. So at 28, I'm diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, finally get pregnant with my first daughter with the help of using medications like metformin, going gluten-free, um, I think I went gluten-free, dairy-free, uh, for PCOS, because that was like what I was reading at the time, um, with then with the help of metformin was told to get off the medication, like after the first trimester, because they didn't know what it would do, ended up developing gestational diabetes. Now I'm having to manage my blood sugar with uh, diet. And they gave me a diet of 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. So they had it broke down. Like I had to have breakfast, a, a snack, lunch, a snack, dinner, and it like how many carbohydrates I could have. And I was testing my blood sugar like three to six times a day was able to manage <clears throat> at this point, I'm up to 250 pounds. And this is pre-pregnancy have the baby. I think I was like at 280, got back down to 250. Fast forward another few years. We're ready for baby number two. I'm now 280 pounds trying to get pregnant. Keep in mind, I'm five, eight, like 280 pounds is probably at least a hundred pounds too much. Um, this time we do all the things again, gluten-free, dairy-free. I go back on metformin. This time they keep me on metformin because they know more or whatever. I don't know. So I never had to like watch what I ate. So I ate all the things when I was pregnant with baby number two, the weight doesn't come off after baby number two. She's now like three years old at one point. Um, and, um, two years old, two years old at, yeah two years old. And, uh, I can't get off. I, I can't get to the floor to play with them. And if I'm on the floor, I can't get off the floor to like, get them what they need. Like it was just miserable. I was like sideline mommy, you know? So I have this two-year-old and I have this five-year-old and I can't ski with them. And my husband and my oldest are skiers. I can't hike with them. I can't do any other things. And my husband was listening to the Joe Pro Joe Rogan experience. And I am not a Joe Rogan fan. Um, but he convinced me to listen to this one episode with, um, Sean Baker on it. And they were talking about keto and carnivore and they brought up polycystic ovarian syndrome. And my husband was like, I know you're tired of trying this dieting thing. I know you're tired of like being overweight and whatever else. And I know you don't like Joe Rogan, but will you please just listen to this episode and let me know what you think. So I listened to it and it must've been like September or October of 2017. I took about a month after that researching keto and that kind of thing. In November, 2017, I went keto for polycystic ovarian to treat my own polycystic ovarian syndrome <clears throat> within three weeks. Um, I, the, the anxiety that I thought was under control, cause keep in mind, I was on depression medications at some point, you know, like the suicidality, all the things, um, uh, the depression that I thought I had under control, the anxiety I thought I had managed, 
I apparently did not because at three weeks, it was like something lifted. I was like, I never want to go back to eating the way I had been. Even if I never lose weight, just because of the mental health improvements that I didn't even know I needed. So I keep eating this way for about three months. And this gal I'd been following on Instagram, who was doing keto, she was going by like keto Kate or something at that time. Um, was reading Vera Tarman's Food Junkies book. And she's like, anybody who follows me consider reading this book. So I did. And then I was like, oh my gosh, now I have a name for it. <laughs> now I know what's happening. And as soon as that happened, which is so funny because I'm a mental health and addiction counselor. Um, I, I was like, how could I not know all these years? I thought it was codependency and emotional eating. Like I really thought that was my issue. And I was like, no, no, it's actually food addiction. And I read that book and I started researching how to get trained in it because here I'm already a sub I'm already licensed as an addiction counselor. Why have I never learned about this and who's doing the certification? I found Esther Helga's program in Iceland. I was too late to get into that class. So, um, I had to wait for the next round. So in the meantime, I went and got certified as a life coach because I knew it wasn't in the DSM. So I wouldn't be able to do it in a traditional therapy kind of way and be reimbursed for it. So I was like, why not go get certified as a coach? Um, see what that's all about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the rest is kind of history. I did her program. Um, I had found bitten in the meantime, I'm now currently in bitten's holistic medic, medic, uh, holistic addiction medicine course. I'm taking a course with Georgia Ede on treating mental health um, concerns with food plans. Um, yeah, so it's just continued to grow after that. And the funny thing is, is when I put down the food, I put down the food because I had already done therapy from 22 to like, I mean, I'm coming up on four years and I'm 38. So from 22 to 34, so 12 years, I'd done 12 years of therapy. So when I put down the food, putting down the food was like the easy part for me. Now it's like this, this ongoing, like kind of like emotional thing, right. Where I'm a person where I don't ever want to, I never want to feel never. Um, because in my mind, I'm never enough. So if I allow those feelings in, right, then it just validates how I'm never enough. So my constant work is how to like allow myself, like having that self-compassion and allowing myself to feel and that it's okay to feel really bad sometimes, you know, or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's how I got to where I am today. I've, I know I've missed parts, but please, you know, let me know if there's something more you'd like to know about Siobhan. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I haven't heard your story before. So that was really, really fascinating and just I mean, what you went through and how resilient you are, um, even just what stuck out to me, even in that home situation that you were in, that you were managed to go to college, you know, even just getting to college and then doing your, and, and just now, you know, getting your master's and how educated you got. I mean, that's amazing. Um, so that alone, I think is, is so impressive. Um, and what also, you know, my story very similar is on birth control at an early age to treat like cramps and then age 20, almost the same, same time I went off and then was like, realized I had polycystic ovary syndrome and me too. That's what first started. Like I try to start eating to manage that. That's when I was first kind of introduced to, like you said, that gluten-free, dairy-free and started kind of experimenting. And I didn't want to do the metformin because that's, yeah, exactly what you're told, go on metformin. And I thought, well, yeah. what else can I do? 
So um, you started keto. Is that kind of what you you follow now too, would you say? or? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I always say like ish, you yeah. know, um, I don't, I don't like advocate people like counting carbs or like checking your blood, you know, your blood ketones or anything yeah. like that, but certainly you know, in the, in the vein that it's, you know, I'm pretty high protein, moderate fat, low carb for sure. You know, if I'm eating carbohydrates, it's in the vegetable form and yeah, it's, but it's also not like potatoes or anything like that. I might have the sweet, a sweet potato from time to time, like very rarely, you know, kind of deal. But, um, for the most part, this is how I just feel my best. Like I find that my hormones are the best control. I mean, I still, I know that your audience can't see me, but like, I still get the, the breakouts. Um, it's still something that we're dialing in and I've tried so many professionals over the years to help me and nobody really knows which is a do. very common, just for people that don't know much about polycystic ovary syndrome, that's yeah, very, very common. So yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. because of that hormone imbalance. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I know 38 and I still have a face like a 14 year old. So what do you do? <laughs> well, so you started like you like November. So that's interesting too. Cause I, you're about a year. How did I start? 2008. Yeah. Around the same time actually, which is also yeah. fascinating to me. It was kind of that fall of 2017. It's just when I started thinking about it, I didn't actually go off sugar until January, but once you went keto, did you really go back? Like once you started like, did you have any relapses or did you struggle like at all with, you said kind of, once you put down the food, that was the easier part for you, which wasn't my experience. I had a really hard time putting down the food. So yeah, Yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was kind of like whatever happened with me, like with the alcohol, like whatever switch it was that happened for me with the alcohol, I think was also true for me with the food and something to keep in mind too. Like when I first went keto, I mean, and I'm saying in quotations, um, is because I, there was still sugar in there. Like I didn't know about food addiction. Right. So it was like a, if it fits my macros kind of keto thing. So I was doing the fat bombs and I was doing the mug cakes and I was doing the, the, you know, like, I don't know, like I always think about, there were these coconut clusters that Costco had and they had like, I think cane sugar was like the second ingredient. Again, I didn't think about it at the time, but I did remember thinking like, if I open this package and I eat it, I'm going to eat it all. So I would like have my husband hide it and give me little bits. So when I read Vera's book, I was like, oh, that makes sense. So, okay. So then I, this is part that I kind of glanced over. So I read Vera's book probably about January, 2018, and it made sense. And then I was kind of doing all my thing. Well, about February, I found Vinny Tortorich who does no sugar, no grains. And that's when I let go of the sugar completely. Um, you know, so it was kind of this progression. And so, you know, again, but it was like, I made a decision and I did it. Now I know that's not everybody's story. And for the vast majority of clients that I work with, that isn't their story. And that isn't my expectation either. I think I was very lucky in that. I don't know if I just enough was enough was enough for all those years that I was just kind of at that point of like, this is it got to do it, you know, kind of deal like, um, or, or what I'm not sure, but yeah, that's so no relapses on sugar or anything like that to answer yeah. your question. No, well, probably mm-hmm. too, like just, you said three weeks in, you were feeling the mental health mm-hmm. improvement that probably alone is really what did it for you. If you had struggled, like you said, yeah. with so much, you know, anxiety, depression on medication for that therapy for it. So 
that all, yeah, that, like you said, you didn't care about the weight loss at that point. Cause our mental, like that is so, yeah. When you go from feeling <laughs> yeah. you know, pretty crappy to feeling any lighter, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, it's like, I'm going to keep doing this. It's worth it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I had been in dark places several times in my life and now I had these little people and when I couldn't get off the ground or I couldn't get to the ground or whatever. Right. Like I remember talking to one of my best friends. I'm like, yeah, I still have those dark places, but now I have children. And so there's really no option to like, like, that's no longer an option on the table, but like, I'm kind of stuck in that place. Um, and, and I wasn't wanting to go back on medications and I thought the anxiety was pretty well. And then, yeah, exactly. To have kind of like that light bulb come on. I was like, well, crap, I'm never, <laughs> I'm never doing that again. I, I actually have a choice in that matter. If it's, if it comes down to the foods that are going into my mouth. No, that doesn't mean that I don't still have anxiety and depression. I do. Um, it's just so well managed at this, even better managed at this point. And again, I still work with my therapist. I've had this therapist that I've worked with has been with me since before my first child. So she's definitely seen, you know, like she'll be the first one to be like, Molly, there's something going on and we need to look at it. Yeah. You know, but yeah, that's probably true. Like to put, yeah, if we like wanted to put like a star on that, you know, like that's probably it. Like, it's just not worth it to me to go to that place because it's scary. And I, you know, nobody likes being there. Nobody wakes up and chooses like, or says like, today is the day that this is where I want to go with my, my thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so obviously like you started seeing the mental health improvement Mm -hmm. and then I'm guessing you just started losing weight too, as you know, side effects. And what other things did you notice like that felt really good and, you know, Yeah. I was a, I I always say I'm a recovering rageaholic. So Mm -hmm. I was a screamer, um, which I think some of was learned behavior. That's how I was parented was with screaming, but also like there was, and I think it was part of the anxiety too, right? Like there was just all like rage, I think is one of the symptoms I have with anxiety. Um, so I would like holler and, and again, my kids were little five and two. Um, you know, so not like something that I was super proud of at the end of the day. Like I would go to bed in tears to my husband. Like, I can't believe I screamed at them for this. I mean, they're being kids, you know? So, so that went away. Um, I started hiking again. I'm skiing with my family. I took up dirt biking this year, uh, last year with my husband. Um, it still scares the crap out of me. I've ridden like ATVs all my life, but dirt bikes are a whole new animal. Um, but I'm willing to try it out. Um, so I just, I just find myself doing things, uh, the fear, like that fear that used to rule my life. It's still there. I think we're biologically wired to fear change, you know? Um, so it's still there, but I, I have this like courage now to do it scared anyway, or at least talk myself through a situation that's like, so what if you mess up or make a mistake? Like things that I didn't know were, you know, again, 12 years of therapy and just shame, shame lifted in a way that 12 years of therapy never lifted. Um, you know, just, I don't even know, like I would have to like sit down and write a list. That's such a great question. Um, it's just, I know that who I am today is like 180 degrees difference from who I was, you know, four years ago, who didn't even know about this yet. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, I'm sure you're much better parents, you know, because of it. And then probably also it's so, I didn't know you and your husband were high school sweethearts too. So he's probably really seen you evolve. And I'm sure this has really helped your relationship too. 
um, you know, just becoming kind of more steady and stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super lucky because he had, right. Like we've grown together. So he's, and he knows my history and my family, you know, that kind of thing too. So, but I've, I've been really lucky. He's never been a person who's been down on me because I've been a hundred pounds more or, um, anything like that. He's just been very supportive and has always been like, you know, if you need to go to therapy, go to therapy. If you need to go get a massage, go get a massage. If you need to do keto, let's, you know, let's help you do that. Um, but yeah, definitely it has improved. Not that our relationship has ever been bad, but certainly it's, it's just not, I don't show up feeling bad at the end of the day because I've been so emotionally dysregulated that I'm like, thank you for being my rock. You don't deserve me. You know, that was me at the end of the day. I'd be like, oh my God, you deserve so much better. I'm crazy, all these things. And luckily for me, he was able to see through that like noise, knew who I was um, and just stuck with me. And yeah, now it's like, we go to bed and at the end of the evening, like we're like, oh yeah, that probably didn't go so great. We'll try again tomorrow, you know, or whatever. Cause we kind of always have these like end of the day conversations, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's different now. It's definitely different now. It's it. I rarely am in tears, which is yeah. Super nice. Yeah. And then just feeling more patient, calm, present with kids. I mean, young kids, yeah. how old are your kids now? Uh, eight and five, and they both have birthdays in December. So okay. yeah. Yeah. So my kids are six and seven. So similar ages. And it's still a very hands-on time of parenting. Like they're very independent in some ways, but you're still having, it requires a lot of patience is my point. So um, a recovering rageaholic. And I think uh, addiction shows up for a lot of people that way. You know, Um, Joan Iflin talks about that too with her. She was, you know, Mm -hmm. so I think anything that we can do, you know, I'm sure you feel better at the end of the day as the parent. Sometimes I lose my temper still though. And then I'm like, beat myself up, but yeah, still much more steady than I would have been when I was, you know, eating all the things like all sugar and flour. So, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So you're normal. You're human. You know, like we all, we all have our limits. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah. And like you said, I don't really beat myself as much um, up as much either. It's like, yeah, I did that. I'll do better tomorrow. I kind of like how you said you and your husband do that at night. It's like, yeah, that didn't go so great. I'll try better. And I kind of do that with myself too, you know, not as, um, yeah, I think I'm able to be a little more flexible and adjust and go with the flow instead of getting like, I probably would have really focused on that and then probably would have eaten something about it and then felt bad about eating something about it. And then it would have just the whole cycle would have continued, you know, day after day. Um, so yeah, I love that. I'm just kind of looking back at your bio again too, and, and how you mentioned, um, the program where you were looking at how, how using food to help different mental disorders. I think that's Mm -hmm. so fascinating. And I've interviewed some, you know, other mental health professionals on the podcast that have no experience with addiction or anything, but have just seen such improvements when they do, um, talk about, you know, diet and nutrition with their clients, just the huge, you know, so I think that's so interesting too, for people, because a lot of people do struggle with mental health issues and how Mm -hmm. much of that now, some people, yeah, definitely need to be on medication. I have nothing against medication, 
but mm -hmm. how much of that could be helped simply by making some changes in lifestyle and nutrition. So I think that's amazing that there's, you know, you know, um, healthcare professionals like you out there that are able to educate people, um, even that maybe aren't addicted, but just have mental health issues just to help them. So have you seen that like in your work a lot? Yeah. So I'm just now doing the training. So I haven't really spoke a, a ton to it. I do allude to it, um, with clients, but it's a harder sell mm. right now than, than because of the lockdowns and because of the, right. Like people are like, if I can't have my takeout, then I have like zero because I'm not going anywhere. I can't go to the restaurants. Right. So like, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, definitely when we can talk about, you know, if they are on medication, my big reminder is medication is just a tool. Medication can only do so much. And if you're constantly going back to your doctor saying it's not working and you want them to up it, up it, up it, up it, but you're not changing what's going on in your environment, including the things that you're eating, including if you're sleeping, including repairing and improving relationships, that medication is going to like have a poop out effect, so to speak, right? Like it, it, again, it has its limitations. It can only get you so far. You have to be willing to meet it. There's some effort required on your part. And so when I kind of give that speech and I make it more than just about the food and like kind of mention these other things, people are a little more on board, um, you know, and, and most people, like, I, I don't think that I've come across somebody in a long time. That's like, yeah, I eat McDonald's five times a week. And I think that's fine. Like most people are like, I know it's not good for me. I'm just surviving right now. And I'm like, okay, you're just surviving right now. And I'm not about to take that away from you. How can we help you move from survival into something else? So that we're not doing McDonald's five times a week. And that's just for like my, my, you know, I guess like regular, if you will, those are for my mental health clients that don't necessarily show up with addiction when there is addiction, be it meth, cocaine, gambling, sex, I don't care what it is. Um, we do definitely talk a lot about sugar processed foods, that kind of thing, because it quickly can become a new outlet. We take away, you know, especially like, and this is where I was, I didn't know until I knew. Um, I had a lot of opioid addicts that would come to me and especially with heroin and that kind of thing. And I always had a bowl of chocolate pieces for them because those opioids and chocolate hit, they connect with the same receptors. So when people were coming off of heroin, um, and they were coming to sit with me, they're already uncomfortable. They're coming to an uncomfortable situation. I had chocolate for them. Well, now I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I doing? Um, <clears throat> I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do, but now I know different. So I do different. Um, but we talk a lot about how, you know, specific food choices can help support withdrawal. It can help support brain rewiring, um, and just recovery in general. And then we talk about educating them as far as like how quickly, you know, like with alcohol, this was always the case with alcohol, people would come off alcohol. And then what are they drinking monsters and red bulls, like to an extreme, they're still seeking the sugar. And so, you know, so again, just a lot of educating. So, yeah, I mean, sorry, I lost track of your question. I hope I answered oh, it. Oh yeah, you but, did. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is true. Like how addictions are so transferable. That's something mm -hmm. that I've learned too, that, you know, a lot of people will just trade one addiction for another, because again, you have to, um, those, you have to get rid of the behaviors too, you know? So yeah. that I think a lot of alcoholics, especially from what I understand 
are probably sugar addicted to start with, you know, and then once they get off alcohol, you know, there's always donuts at the meeting and right. Or they become smokers or whatever. So unless you're addressing all the behaviors too, um, that's part of, you know, like I like to say, I think giving up the sugar and flour for me was part one, but then it was also really addressing the emotional stuff and other behaviors and replacing, you know, behaviors with what I used to do. And that's a probably a lifelong process. You know, I've been almost four years in recovery and I'm still evolving, learning, you know, every day. Yeah. 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 And I always think about, you know, most of us developed, like, especially if it's food, you know, or whatever we developed that stuff when we were very young. So our brains were still growing and pruning, growing and pruning, right? Because our brain is not done developing until we're about 25 years of age. Um, so think about all the growth and pruning that was happening and the, the growth was impacted by that substance use essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in our thirties or, or older or younger, whatever, whoever's listening. Right. And we're trying to rewire our brain. Well, we spent the early part of our brain, those formative years adding substances to it. So it's going to take us some time. And there is a researcher out of Harvard that he like laid it out and it's like 18 years on average. And he broke it down and he's like, at first it takes seven years to get consistent in abstinence and and early recovery. And then it takes like five years of that consistency to like reduce your um, risk of relapse. And then it's like another five years or something like that, five or six years where you're consistent enough in that abstinence and recovery that the risk of relapse drops below 15%. So it's like, I always tell people, I know I give you this number not to scare you, but think about 18 years. Like this is not an overnight kind of thing. This is not like a four year kind of thing. This is like an 18 year kind of thing, potentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And And that's because so many people, again, want that overnight quick fix. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I was seeking and same, I think with, you know, when we're talking about like people on medication, it's just like much rather take a pill. Oh, is there a pill for that versus (laughs) making all these changes is a lot more work, but in the long run, it's addressing, it's not a bandit. It's getting to the underlying symptoms. And in the long run, it's going to be, it's worth it. It just takes more work and effort. Um, And the other thing I wanted to touch on, we are running out of time, but the other thing I wanted to touch on, because I just think this is so important to me, is getting that diagnostic criteria in the DSM. Um, And so, because for me, like you, you know, you talk about emotional eating, you know, a lot of people emotionally eat, but there is sometimes food addiction at the core of that. Mm -hmm. I thought I was a binge eating you know, that's what I diagnosed myself with, was binge eating disorder and seek so much treatment for that, which is basically moderation. So I spent so much money, time, whatever, like going down the wrong path, especially when I was like, oh, moderation's an option. That sounds much better than abstinence. I just think there's so many people out there that aren't, that's what bothers me, that aren't probably getting access to the treatment and help they need. Um, so I'm really just excited that, that you're working on, you know, that movement to really get that and just explain to people a little bit that maybe aren't familiar with the DSM, like why that's important, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So for those of us in the U S and I'm, I think they use it in Canada too, but for, especially for those of us in the U S, um, because of our private healthcare system. Um, the DSM is the diagnostic statistical manual and it's, it has all the diagnoses in it that, you know, um, the powers that be have decided are legitimate. 
Um, and so the powers that be is the American Psychological Association and they have committees and that kind of thing. And it takes a long time to get things into, um, into this manual and it's changed. It, it's always changing. So we're like on version five right now. Um, so it's really important though, because once it's in there, then that typically means, and not always does it mean, but it gives us more, um, oomph, I guess, to fight insurance companies to have them cover such a diagnosis. So, you know, the big win for, for one of the big wins from the addiction perspective with DSM-5 way back when, I mean, it's already 2011 when that one came out, um, was the addition of gambling mm. for sure. Um, video games and, uh, there were a couple other, oh, and we went from, um, from it being like alcohol use disorder to, um, or, or like chemical dependency to like substance use disorder. So it became a spectrum versus like alcohol abuse and alcohol, um, dependency. Mm -hmm. So the word dependency went away and it became the spectrum where, you know, we can have people who are mild, moderate, severe. So those were big wins. So it's really important that, um, the APA and the WHO, um, recognize, food addiction. And, and to me, it doesn't matter if we call it food addiction, food use disorder. I don't care what it's called. It just needs to be defined to correctly encompass enough people to be getting the help that they need. Because once we have it in their insurance companies, then we fight with them to get them to cover it. And then they pay for treatment, right? They, they say, you can come to somebody like me and you don't have to pay out of pocket unless you have a copay or whatever. You don't have to pay out of pocket for that treatment. I mean, when I, when I bill insurance companies, I mean, I'm $150 an hour, right. And, and I'm a master's level clinician. So there are PhD level clinicians who charge more for shorter periods of time, you know, because we are required to have continuing education every year. We're required to have master's degrees and doctorate degrees and all these things. So when you, when you get this kind of thing recognized by these, again, these powers that be, whether it be the WHO or the APA, it just opens up uh, uh, the room for somebody to create a treatment center to, to bring you to for 30 days. It, it creates the, the ability for a treatment for um, eight weeks of intensive outpatient to be paid for, and you don't have to pay for it out of pocket. I mean, this treatment is expensive. Even if we're using Medicaid rates, it's still expensive you know? And so, um, it's, it's just a way to get it paid for, honestly, you know, bottom line, it's a way to get it paid for. But also I think when we make it legitimate like that, um, we have the ability to be validated in that that's our truth and our reality, because so much of, I mean, and I avoid it because I just think they're not worth my time. But in my early days on social media, my, a lot of my time was spent pushing back against like eating disorder therapists who believe all foods fit for everybody. And it's the moderation game and all of that kind of stuff. And then when I figured out, oh, their education is paid for by big food. Then I was like, okay, never mind. Like you're not worth my time. If you don't have the ability to have an open mind and even hear what I'm having to say and just want to have a conversation with me. And so you just want to be like, nope, food addiction doesn't exist, period. Then I don't want to have time for you either. Like that's fine. You're not for me. My clients are not for you and, and we'll keep moving on. Um, but I think that it just opens the door to, again, then it gives us a level of, you know, the level of nutritionists and registered dietitians that are out there that will start treating it, you know, so just gives us so many more levels of care and options. 
I love that. Thank you. And because I've talked about it before, and I think I even did a whole episode on why I would like it to be medically recognized too. But I think that's just um, really well said. And yeah, just talks about the importance. If, if it is covered, more people are able to get treatment too. It just makes it more available, you know, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of communities that struggle with this, probably in a lower financial bracket, you know, yes. so it's just getting help for more people. Um, yeah. And yeah, getting that recognition that this is like a real thing and not some of that doesn't exist. So, yep. um, and then just real quickly too, cause we are out of time, but I wanted, cause I'm very excited I, I, that you're doing a food junkie uh, summit in October. So do you want to just talk about that a little bit and the best way, you know, to get in touch with you, I'll link all of your, you know, your website and stuff, but just, yeah, talk yeah. to us a little bit of how to get in touch with you. Sure. Yeah. So the Food Junkie Summit is going to be October in the Facebook groups. We for sure are going to air them in Vera Tarman's group, the I'm Sweet Enough, or Sugar Free for Life Support, I'm Sweet Enough. Um, we'll run it by Bitten to make sure we can put it in her group, which is Sugar Bomb in Your Brain. But it's free. The idea is it will be one video per day. We have, um, so like one week is going to be the leaders in the field. So I, I always call them the OGs. So people like Marty Lerner and Bitten and Esther and Vera, right? So there'll be one week of them. There'll be a week of clinicians in the field. So people, maybe you, who you haven't met, maybe you have met, but you know, hearing from them one week of nutritionists and registered dietitians or some, you know, people in the nutrient, like who specialize in the nutrition part of it. And then there's going to be one week of personal stories. So we're making it bite-sized so that there's just one a day. You don't have to like frantically try to find time to watch eight different speakers in a day or lose it. Um, it's going to be free. And the um, whole month of October. For the whole month of October. Amazing. So how do yeah. people sign up for that? Because again, this episode will air uh, September 15th. So you got plenty of time to sign up. So what's the yeah. best place to sign up? Just join the Facebook groups. Okay. Yep. Yep. Join so. the Facebook groups. Yeah. There's no registration required or anything. Like they're just going to be posted in those groups and Clarissa and I will use social media and, and whatever to promote it. Um, probably also place them on our social media, but the main viewing area will be in those groups. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'll make sure to have a link to like, um, Vera's Facebook group to, for people to sign up. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That's amazing. Um, and then my last thing I always like to end an interview with is just to give you an opportunity. Is there any like last words of wisdom or takeaways or anything that you wanted to touch on that maybe we didn't get to today? Sure. I mean, I think ultimately my, what I want my clients or anybody who hears me to know is that to me, I think we need to be informed eaters. And because I, I don't believe in this, like eating disorder camp, food addiction camp, whatever. I think we need to be informed eaters. I'm a person that I know I have to abstain from specific things so that I don't binge because they will act like drugs in my brain. Um, not everybody has that, but be an informed eater, learn to read ingredient labels, um, learn to cook some meals at home that are low exposure, right? Figure out what, how much is too much sugar for you. Start by looking at the ADA guidelines. Um, you know, basically don't just take the government's my plate <laughs> and think that that's the healthiest thing for you, right? Just go do your research. And if you need help with that, there's lots of people. You can always reach out to me. I do free 30 minute consultations. I run a support group on Fridays for free. Um, you know, we're in the Facebook groups. I'm on Instagram every day or most days of the week, you know, 
there's, there's so many people, Siobhan, like there's just so many people out there that are willing to help you find a way that works for you. And I think ultimately that's it. Find a way that works for you. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what they're saying. Do what works for you, because at the end of the day, you're going to be a happier, healthier person, which is going to make you a happier, healthier mother, father, sibling, friend, whatever. Yeah. And I agree with that a hundred percent of, yeah, do it the way that works for you, you know, cause that's how it's going to be sustainable too. So yeah, well, thank you so much. I'll make sure we link all the ways to get in touch with you. And I'm already like, we're going to have to have a follow-up episode because we haven't even gotten into the kids stuff of, you know, <laughs> raising kids and, you know, I think that can be a whole episode another time. So right. we'll have to do a follow-up, but absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been really great. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.